This is Rod Allen. And I'm John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today we welcome Jeff Duncan Andrade. Jal, you're well acquainted with Jeff. Why are you excited to have him on the show today? I know there's many reasons, but maybe you can introduce Jeff. Sure. So Jeff's professor of Raza Studies and Education at San Francisco State University. He probably doesn't need much of an introduction to our listeners because he is well known out there in the world. Uh, A couple of the things that I love about Jeff is that for the past 24 years, he's been a classroom teacher and school leader in uh, East Oakland. So he's one of the rare people that sits in part in uh, a university setting and can think in big picture ways. But he also spends a lot of time teaching and uh, he founded uh, Roses in Concrete Community School, Community Responsive Lab School in East Oakland. So that's that's one point, his ability to bridge. Uh, he talks about equity in the most beautiful, real ways of almost anyone I know. He came to a meeting at Harvard that I was running and kind of blew it up because he thought that uh, we were not committed enough to equity and doing deep, sustainable work together, which turned out to be totally right. So yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons I, I like him. And he's a Warriors fan and a fan of beautiful basketball, which I also uh, appreciate. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. All right. So um, let's just uh, start where we are. You spend a lot of time in your school and in schools and talk with a lot of people out there in the sector. What, what are you seeing right now? Um, I mean, one of the things I've been talking about quite a bit lately is my frustration with what feels like a, a bit of a crisis of courage. Um, I, I feel like all of the stuff that's been going on in our um, society that uh, reached somewhat of a head in, in the past, you know, year, year and a half, um, I, I felt like was a window of opportunity that I, I frankly haven't seen in, in my now going, you know, close to 30 years um, in, in doing this work um, <clears throat> that I, I was really hopeful would um, create some, some courageous uh, rethinks about what, what we are doing in schools and, and, and more, more directly and explicitly why we're doing it. And I felt like there was a real opportunity for us both locally, like in, in, you know, specific communities um, and then also um, nationally to do a real rethink about uh, this idea of uh, a national public school system. And um, then on the ground, you know, I have been working with a lot of districts um, all over the country as they've, as they've on, on its face said that, you know, we need to really rethink this and we need to think what it's going to look like for students to come back and we need to really deal with, you know, white supremacy and the, the racial injustice, et cetera. And then my experience was that they were basically trying to figure out how to come back to what they had before. Now, I've also said that um, I I don't think that it's fair to lay that at the seat of administrators um, because 
the nation really fell on its face in in its ability to actually rethink how we're going to support schools to rethink themselves, right? So, so schools are that now asked to literally develop protocols on how to protect unvaccinated children from a global health pandemic, right? And we're we're really not going to give you any significant new resources, and we're still going to expect you to do all the stuff that you've done before, which you didn't do well before, anyway. And so. I felt like there was an opportunity for administrators and district leaders to really like fundamentally rethink the purpose of their project. But I think in order to do that, you know, and this is, I'm coming to you, you know, directly adjacent to Silicon Valley, right? In order to do that, in order to be that innovative, um, there has to be I, I think a number of things, but two things in particular that I noticed are woefully absent in schools. Um, one is a tremendous amount of resources um, to, to really sort of freely innovate. And two, and, and this is connected to the resource piece, but two, there has to be an, an infrastructure and a real understanding and valuing and desire to fail. And then to have the infrastructure there to actually learn from the failure. And schools are one of the institutions and places that are most allergic to failure. They duck, dodge, and deny failure because failure is, is evidence that they're, well, failing, <laughs> right? And, and some of the industry leaders that I've had the opportunity and privilege to talk to in Silicon Valley one of the things that's most striking to me in those conversations is that they'll say that, that one of our, if not our most valuable commodity is failure. And, and they actually incentivized it because they built an infrastructure to, to understand that, that it is through that failure that they're really learning where they need to tighten, where they need to loosen, where they need to redirect. And so you know, I, I think that that's where a lot of my head is at right now. Like, where are the spaces in schools? Where are the leaders? Um, where are the resources for um, schools to really use this opportunity to, to first have a meaningful conversation about for what? Why do we take children from their families? by law at the age of six for 13 consecutive years for eight hours a day. I, I think if we don't have that conversation, then what we end up doing and what I see happening in schools, and this is an example of it, is that what, what happens is um, that we add more stuff to the plate. And the plates of schools, the plates of teachers, the plates of school leaders are not full. They're over full. And the only way to clear that plate is to get foundational and to ask the question, for what? Like everything's off the plate, like literally everything. I mean, reading, writing, math, PE, everything off the plate, clean plate. What, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? 
and then restock the plate and 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 fact check it. Like, does does adding reading in in this way vibe with what we're saying our purpose is? And if it if it's not, then you right rethink and rework or or leave it off the plate. That's a a massive project to do, right? If we think about schools and 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 rethinking schools at a systems level, right? And so I think there's a strategic error that we've made um, around how we think about rethinking schools. So let me just pick up on a couple of things you said. The first one was about because I think they intersect in ways that you're pointing out. So the first one was about scarcity, right? Like I think the lack of resources that when you're in an environment of scarcity, scarcity of money, scarcity of time, uh, because of the scarcity of money of time, scarcity of the ability to build relationships with students, that just promotes basically like a survival instinct. Like how can we get to tomorrow? And the kind of rethinking you're talking about and the kind of Silicon Valley failures that you're talking about, you know, those are things that you do when you have uh, abundance, like when you have a little bit of room and your basic needs are met and you're fed and you have a little time in your day to think about things and so forth. And then that, that creates the space to sort of try things. And I feel like there's a lot of talk about failure, but rarely is it connected to resources, the, the way in which resources creates the opportunity to be in a different kind of mindset or place. And then the second thought I had about your sort of like zero-based budgeting kind of idea is over Thanksgiving, I cleaned out my garage, I cleaned out the shelves where all the mail is, et cetera, et cetera. And like what the, you know, the experts in these things tell you to do is don't go into those things like one by one, just pull it all out and then like put it in a pile and then see which of that stuff you actually want and you want to keep and which stuff you don't. And as you're, you're pointing out, connecting it to a purpose. So I think there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Did, did you, did you Marie Kondo your, your garage, Jal, is it a, a phrase you like to use? I, I did. There is absolutely nothing in my garage. I can actually get out of my car without stumbling over things to get into my house. So uh, it has, in fact, made a big difference in my life. So that's a theme of subtraction. Exactly. A, a metaphor for our schools and the kinds of things we, you know, when we talk about transformation and deeper learning, we so often just add it to the top of the precarious pile, uh, as opposed to, you know, every time we're adding something, we should be thoughtfully taking something out, practices or processes or whatever it might be. Jeff, I was going to ask you, so you, you, you put out a, a pretty compelling argument for rethinking everything. Why aren't we? Like, what's, what's stopping us? Is it uh, just there's not enough time, which is a, a perceived, you know, there's always enough time to do the right things. You just got to do less of the dumb things. You know, is it, is it a time, you know, a sort of a resources issue? Is it, is it mindset? Is it... Um, you know, what's this draw to, to get back to normal, which really didn't work well for anybody or work, only worked well for a very few? What's stopping us? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it really works well for anybody. And I think our, our national health data uh, is 
um, pretty reflective of that, that we are the, the, the least well of any industrialized nation, despite spending you know, some estimates as much as 20x um, on, on healthcare. Um, something is, is, is really wrong with um, not only our, our, our broader society and the wellness of our broader society, but I think it, it, in particular, the way in which we treat and raise our children. And I think that the lack of acknowledgement of that is, is what's in the way. I, I think that the general public sentiment, not having taken some, you know, mega national public poll on this, but my, my, my sense is the general sentiment is that schools are a public good. And so why, like, why do a fundamental rethink? Like, let's just tweak around it, right? And let's just, kid, let's just make the kids behave better. Um, let's make the teachers behave better, right? Let's make the families behave better. And then it'll all be good because schools are an inherent public good. I challenge that premise in part because I know the history of public schools um, and they're nefarious. The, the example I often use is that I'll ask, you know, audiences, like how many of you own a home? And, you know, some cross-section of people will raise their hands. Um, and I say, okay, well, when you bought your home, what was the first thing you had expected? And, you know, most people will say the foundation. And I said, well, why the foundation? Why didn't you check out the roof or the, you know, the, the, the new flooring or the you know, HVAC system? Why, why, why the foundation? And, of course, the logic there is because if, if I've got all new stuff on around the foundation, it's all coming in on itself. Well, there you have it, right? The foundation of public schools in this nation is rotten. Um, the schools were not designed to create a pluralistic, multiracial, critically, civically engaged democracy, right? They, they just weren't. Um, there, there's nothing in the history of schools to suggest that that's what they were designed to do. But I think that that, you know, Cornel West has commented on the, the sort of um, the ahistorical nature of this society. You know, what he says, ducking, dodging, and denying, right? All of this history, that if we, if we really understood the history of public schools, then what's happening in public schools makes all sense. Like, oh, right, right. So it's it has to be foundational. But I think people don't start digging up their foundation in their house, right, unless they are convinced that there's some like really serious stuff going on, and that it's a real crack in the foundation. So I think that there, that that that's a really key piece of it. it, it uh, until there's some tipping point where. I think more people understand that the what's actually happening in schools. And the truth is, is that very few people, even, even parents, spend very much time in schools, right? They, they really don't know what happens between eight and three. If you spend a lot of time in schools, I mean, even quote unquote good schools, like it's troubling what's happening there. It's troubling, like the day-to-day -day experience of, of children. Um, and it, and my, the, my frustration is it really doesn't need to be this way. And we know it doesn't need to be this way because inside of every school, there's these really magical spaces, right, where educators are creating a fundamentally different kind of experience, both for themselves and for the children, right, that they're serving. And that's why I stay so connected in schools. That's why I, I, I am honestly like imminently hopeful, right, about the potential. But there's a there's a there's a 
another allergen, right, that the society has is the truth, right? Like we, we have a real problem with actually telling the truth about the history of this nation, right, where we are, how we got here. And I think until there's a commitment to that, and, and particularly with our children, right, until there's a commitment to just tell the damn truth, and, and, and you don't have to have any answers, you know, like you don't. That, that why isn't our, you know, our, our, well, there's no national curriculum, but why isn't our, you know, why isn't our curriculum just questions, just questions, right, about to our children, about all we're going to read about children, right, is how to end suffering, <laughs> how to end poverty, how to end hunger, right, how to end cancer, right, how to end racism, how to end patriarchy, how to end heteronormativity, like what? Why isn't that the curriculum? You know, and there's, I was talking to my class yesterday at the university, and I was talking about, I think his name is James Hunter. He was a national teacher of the year many years ago, fourth grade teacher. And he developed this whole curriculum called the, 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 the World Peace Game, right? And that was the whole year, the fourth grade curriculum, all year, all day, was a game. And the game was as a class community, you have one responsibility if you want to make it to fifth grade, and it's all of us or none of us. You have to achieve world peace by the end of the year. And he came up, and I don't know if you've ever seen this guy, right? But he has like a TED talk and they have like live video of this class and it, the kids do it, right? They do it um, because their young people are so unlocked around these things, right? And, and, and we're so locked up around these things. I mean, that's one of the things that, that gives me hope. I mean, uh, when Sarah and I visited a lot of schools, we would always have a, a lunch period where they would put us around a table and hand us some brown bags and just have a conversation. And just kids' eyes and spirit and body would just come alive when you just ask them, like, okay, like, what, what kind of place is this? Like, what makes it good? What makes it not good? Why? If you had to give this place a metaphor, like, what would you say? Students were so incisive they were like their hallway selves, you know, like fully present and interested, not their classroom selves, kind of passive and stone-faced. On the point about schools and telling the truth, I remember Lindsay Hill from the Rakes Foundation giving a keynote at the High Tech High Deeper Learning Conference. Could have been one where you gave a keynote too, but I remember hers. And she's a Black woman who's a a foundation officer at Rakes, or she was at the time. And she said, you know, my adult life has been the process of unlearning what I learned in the first 18 years in school. So like Christopher Columbus didn't found America. You don't get ahead by sitting in rows and lines. Like she said, you know, everything from the formal curriculum to the informal curriculum, you know, my adult life has been about unlearning the things that they taught me in my, my first life. And I was like, that's a really powerful way of, uh, of putting it. Rod, Canada has its own history of colonialism and settler colonialism and residential schools and so forth. But there's been some movement, at least in BC, British Columbia, on 
trying to remedy some of that and move in a more progressive direction? First of all, do you think that's true? And second of all, how? Like, is 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 it did it did it come from the you know a social movement outside of the schools, the society? Was it a a, a broader you know reckoning which led to a reckoning in the schools? Or tell us a little bit about that. For sure. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's it's something's happening for sure. And it's a it, it's greater it's bigger than schools it it's a, it's across society but you know we there's certainly a belief and and I 100% agree uh, because of our our um, you know the, because residential schools were such a big part of the colonial approach to really removing trying trying to remove the culture and language from our indigenous peoples that education got us into this mess and it's going to be education that gets us out of the out of this mess that's a quote from uh, chief justice marie sinclair education got us into this mess education needs to get us out of this mess so so schools are seen as a central pillar of of the movement to begin to reconcile to head down the the reconciliation path but i think to jeff's point we're a long way off from reconciliation but we're be, we're a, a little bit farther down the road of telling the truth, and it just has to start with truth. We just have to put it out there, and be okay with how yucky and awful and disturbing that truth is, and and let that sit for a bit while we figure out collectively figure out a path forward, and and how we can begin reconciliation. So reconciliation beginning with telling the truth. And I think our schools are places where we are trying to tell that truth, uh, work with our students, and work with the greater community around what those hard truths are, and how deeply then they're embedded in our systems. I'm, I'm thinking of a of a a recent conversation that that included George Papandreou, who was a previous Prime Minister of Greece, who's a great thinker and and speaker on education issues and and he said a a a great truism i think that the there's a direct link between the pedagogy in schools and the power structures that surround the schools and you you think that pedagogy is just this personal little uh teacher teacher set of decisions that they make inside their classroom but really there's so much hanging off of off of that, that aren't in teachers' controls, the systems, the structures of our schools, the the beliefs, uh, how they're funded, how they're resourced, all those things that are more related to uh, the power structures that surround our schools. What type of society are we? What do we believe about truth? Can we tell the truth in our schools? Are 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 they places of of truth? Back to your question, Jala. You know, I I think for sure uh, we're we're on the right in the right conversation in British Columbia specifically Canada in general, uh, a long way to go, but it just to so agree with Jeff. Uh, and I think we're there. Can we just tell the damn truth? I would get that tattoo. I, I really love what you were just saying, Ron. I think there's one distinction that, that has really influenced my thinking about this is something that Angela Valenzuela talked about in, in her book, Subtractive Schooling. And she, she draws this distinction really through the voice of, of the children that she's talking to, right? And, and the kids draw this really like powerful binary, right? Uh, between that differentiates between schooling and education. So I don't think education got us into this. 
I think schooling got us into this. And, and I think, I think, and I think it's a really important distinction for us to have the conversation that I'm talking about that what we are doing is schooling children, right? Where, and the, the, the way I've talked about this is that schooling is the process by which you institutionalize people to accept their position in life. And education is the process by which you teach them that they can transform it, right? And I think that we are invested as a nation in schooling children, even wealthy kids. That's the purpose piece, right? Like that, that's really why are we doing this? And if, if the purpose right, is to really create an educated citizenry, then there's so much about schools that we have to rethink and redo and transform. Another idea that I've been really thinking a lot about is you mentioned reconciliation. The approach or the concept that I've been thinking a lot about, which I think is, is affiliated with reconciliation, but feels deeper to me, is the process of atonement, right? And, and I think that what, what I watch, even with my, in, our, in the school that our community founded, where my sons go, right? They're now in third grade there. And, and you know, I've watched them when, when harm is done, like let's say on the playground, okay? And the school practice, and this is like the national school practice, right? Is apology, right? We, we teach children to apologize. Like you did something wrong and you need to say sorry, right? And then the other, the person who's harmed is then like expected to like accept the apology, right? And then, okay, and it's all good. And we just move on, right? It's all good, right? And that's, that's all about adult stuff, right? Like, because, because to your point, Rod, that, that, like we don't have the pedagogical space to actually deal with what just happened, right? And the kind of harm that, that, that led to the harm is leading to more harm, like can't, can't deal with it, right? So just apologize because you, you can't, you're not supposed to kick people, right? And then, and then you feel better now, right? That you, you got kicked, but then they said they were sorry for kicking you. And so, right, we're good, right? Okay, yeah, back, back to plus. And atonement, is is really what in my mind sits underneath a, a culture of wellness because in atonement like you do need to apologize I, I think that's important and you have to repair harm which means you have to actually have to understand the harm and the depth of the harm and then work right it in relationship with the community, right, to figure out how do we repair that? Because some things can't be repaired as in replaced, right? Because I think that's often how the, the U.S. thinks about reconciliation. How much do I owe you? Right? And then we don't address the spiritual harm. We don't address the emotional harm. So now, like, whatever, I've got the vase, of, 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 a replica vase of the one who broke, Right. But the loss that I feel because of what the original vase meant is never dealt with. Right. Because it's all about material. Right. If you lose X, you replace it with X. And and I think that that what you were saying makes so much sense to me. But I'm not sure that Canada or anybody else is attempting to really talk about the in, in the states, the double genocide, the genocide against indigenous people and genocide against African people. I'm not sure we're really talking about what are we really talking about, right? It's a historical moment that now the, 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 the light is shining brightly on. And it's like, oh, oh, wow. Like what, what? 
how do we how do we fix that? You don't. You don't fix it, right? And so the the what reconciliation really means, I think, is 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 something that all of these colonial nation states and individual self included really don't understand just yet. And and we're really nascent in our understanding about what is it actually going to take, not just for us to tell the truth, but then to raise a generation of children that are going to course correct, not just the ducking, dodging, and denying, but all of the generational harm that is carrying forward and it frankly is in the way of our humanity both individually and collectively. And I think that schools actually have the capacity to create pedagogy and curriculum that raises a generation of children that is prepared to take that on. We want we want our children not to be best in the world, but to be best for the world. Amen. Okay, so we've been talking about this at a kind of big picture level, and I feel like one of the strengths that you bring to this conversation uh, among many is that you have a lot of practical experience. You know, you, you spent a lot of time in high schools and now uh, across the whole spectrum. So what, what does some of this look like in a classroom? Like what, what if I came to visit your, your high school humanities classroom, what, what would I see? And uh, how does that exemplify some of the things we've been talking about? Well, I, I'll just start by saying that, that I um, I didn't do all of these things, you know, like, um, and there were times when I replicated, you know, systems of harm and upheld. So um, I, I'm I'm no like paragon of, you know, like the the the, the pedagogy that we're we're aspiring to, right? And because it's it's really hard, it's really hard to do it. Period. Just with like my two boys. Right. Let alone um, with, you know, 25 kids who are cycling through your class every hour, let alone that that project inside of an institution that is constantly incentivizing you to not do it that way and punishing you when you do. Okay, so it's it's this really thick stoop, right, that I have been swimming in as an educator and somebody who is a researcher and thinks a lot about this stuff as an extension of my practice, right? But also trying to help others like figure out how to do it. So I think there's a lot of people who do it a hell of a lot better than than I do and ever did. So I I just want to say that. And I think that that what I really wanted to create in my classroom was a community. So I think some of the things that people would um, remark on oftentimes when they would come and visit my classroom is they couldn't find me. So, right, we, were, we did a lot of project-based stuff. You know, we were some of the first people to do, to start talking about this idea of YPAR, which, you know, is an acronym because it's, that's mandatory in education, I guess. Um, which stands for Youth Participatory Action Research, to really, really think about what is what, what would a research-based curriculum be that where where the whole point of, you know, we were, I was teaching lit- English literature, but it was like, well, why do you read? You know, well, you read to better understand your life and the lives of others, and you 
you you try to better understand your life and the lives of others to, to figure out like what are the what are the issues in my life that I need to really be deeply appreciative of and what are the issues in my life that I really need to resolve. Um, and so um, it was a, a literature class. It was very much you know sort of inquiry based and research based around what are the things in your life that you really want to transform. And then how do we make our curriculum about that? What that meant was oftentimes people would come to visit my class and they couldn't find me because we were in like all kinds of group-based, project-based work. And I'm I'm in it with them. Like I'm not standing in front, right? I'm not pontificating. I mean, there's times when I did because I'm the instructional leader right in this space. But but a lot of times it was just, you know, my students would walk in and and I wouldn't say anything and just be like, get let's get to work, you know. I think the other thing that was very different structurally in the way that I approached it, and I I, I did this literally from the first year I started teaching. So I started teaching when I was 20 years old. And and I and I knew that the design of school was going to structurally interrupt what I wanted to accomplish as a teacher because I only had my students for nine months and then and then they would move on and we would have to start over and I was like that's just dumb right and, and I think I understand the stupidity of that because I was an athlete and and my best experiences in school were the kinds of deep relationships that formed with my teammates and my coaches because we were together for four years, right? And and developmentally, like we just grew so much together because of time. And anyway, I think you mentioned that earlier, Joe. Like one of the things that like is absent from schools is time. Like to do this kind of creativity, you've got to have time. So I just created looping structures, which were really, really rare in secondary, right? They're, they happen not as often as they should in elementary, but even in elementary, they're flawed because you only loop for a year. So it's like you have like a K1 loop or a 1-2 loop or a 2-3 loop. And I would loop for four years with students. And one of the ways I would describe this when, when I was researching some of my own practice and talking to you know school leaders and teachers about this is like, think about that. Like, Day one, year two is not day one. It's day 366, right? So we're picking up where we left off. And what you can do with that, just in, just, just relational, like I'm not even talking about like, you know, academic skill development or whatever, is, is profound. Well, think about what happens in day one, year three, day, like, my relationship with your family, like I know your closest family members. I know, I know your parents and your guardians. I know where you live. I know what you've been going through. And you know me, right? Like I don't know me to like set the classroom rules or, you know, like it's right. We're, we're off and running. And the depth of the kind of conversations we have, because we don't need to build a relationship. We've already been building a relationship. And I think structurally that was probably the most significantly different thing you know i think people picked up a lot on, on the pedagogy that we would use the curriculum we would use but i think people slept on the fact that we created this looping structure 
that was really based on, that's why my second book is called What a Coach Can Teach a Teacher. Because I feel like there's so much, not only in coaching, but in, in some of the design around sport, which is also, you know, pretty toxic, right, in schools. Youth sports is, can be quite toxic. But I, I think that that structure, right, that we are going to be together from multiple years, it profoundly impacted the kinds of curriculum and pedagogy that we could use in that space. Yeah. I think the reason that it's not designed that way is people vastly underestimate the importance of the relational aspects of schooling. I was just having a thought, my oldest son is now in fifth grade and you know, in the first three grades at night, the assignment was to read. Like you have to read for 25 minutes. And that was it. Like you had to write on a sheet of paper like that you'd read and how many pages you'd read. But that was basically it. And then starting at fifth grade, like you have to read a particular thing that the teacher has assigned for X number of minutes. And I, I was just sort of thinking about that. And I was thinking the first one, the goal is like, let's make this kid a reader. Like we we value like reading as a, a like as a way of being, and then the second thing is like, hey, we've decided that this book is important for you, and you need to know what's in it, and that is a really different you know relationship with the kid because sometimes sure depends on the book and the kid in the moment. Like that's why you're a teacher. Sometimes you know things the kid doesn't know, and you connect the kid to something that they haven't seen before, but a lot of times it just it just sort of changes it from like, we're trying to help you become a, a kind of person to like, we want you to know these things. And I, and I think that the reason that schools are set up to, you know, cycle kids from one teacher to another or from one year to another is it's all set up around, we want you to know these things. And it's not set up around, we're trying to help you be you as young people become something. And if we, if we thought about it that way, then what you're saying would be, you know, the sort of the obvious way to do it. Yeah. And, and another point of pushback I've heard around this, which does make some sense to me too, is that, and, and I, I don't know, I've like, I've had some interesting like debates around this, right? So, so let, let's say, right, that your son um, lands with a teacher that they really don't connect with, Right or that is creating a toxic space. And now your kid's gonna be trapped in that environment, right, for, for four years, right? But but I don't know, like, like the, the, I get that, but, and, and I understand the, 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 the concern around that. And I feel like it's also that that's kind of the, the, the sort of underhanded, backhanded teacher's light, right? Like when we got all these like whack teachers, and if you stick and yeah, it was good because Jeff, like you're a really committed and talented teacher, but what happens if, and I kind of feel like, like maybe, but I, I just feel like if, if that was the structure of teacher development, right, that you're going to have these kids for multiple years, right? How might that transform the, the teaching profession, right? And, and how the teaching profession is approached, how it's supported, how teachers develop, how they're recruited. I also could, let me offer one more thought on this and then Rod, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Imagine a world where 
it wasn't so sort of regimented like one way or another. I mean, you know, like I went with the same baseball coach for four years, but after ninth grade, I like stopped running cross country. Like I just, I just decided like, I don't want to spend my afternoons like running around in long, long circles. And, you know, what, what if it looked more like that, you know, some, some things really caught for the student and the teacher and the person stayed and deepened and some things didn't. And then they explored something else with someone else. And what if that also included like, why has everything got to be a semester? Like maybe some, some things would be good in three weeks with someone, you know, in the world who doesn't have a semester, but could take a couple of weeks off to really, you know, get kids excited about something. So, you know, what if, what if it was all just, you know, the, the, the time slot fit the thing in the relationship rather than it just is what it is. That's that is was my opening salvo around like in order to do yes absolutely and in order to do that what would you need you'd need a lot of resources right you'd need the the runway to be able to try it and fail and rethink it right and and because I, I agree right like what you're describing is precisely the kind of environment we want our children in um, where you can you know yeah try the guitar you know do six lessons and then you decide you don't like it, you want to switch to the piano, don't, go for it, right? Like, but we trap kids and we trap teachers and we trap schools around, well, you have to do it this way and we have to do this system-wide. Everybody's going to do it this way. Everybody's going to loop. And and that's schooling. It seems to me this is coming, keeps coming around in my mind to agency as well, right? Who Who's deciding? Is is it the, the state? or the province or whatever, that this body of content is going to take you X number of weeks to learn. And, you know, we joke in BC, isn't it great that, that all kids learn kindergarten in 1500 hours? Uh, Cause you know, that's, it's, it's awesome. It's a good thing that that that's true. So it's not just getting rid of time, but it's also who, who gets to decide, right. And, and, and allowing students increasing agency with, agency with some direction and choice and support is not just sit under the trees and read comic books all day, but to decide, well, I've tried guitar and that didn't work for me, but I'm pretty intrigued around piano and I need the flexibility to go and, and give that a swing. Um, and not the pressure of, and you know, you talked about sports and because no one on a team expects everyone on the team to be doing exactly the same thing at the same time in the same way because you've got different positions, you've got different roles, you've got different skills, and that's called coaching, is bringing that all together into something that's larger than any one person. If we approached schooling that way, or education that way, our classrooms felt more like that, then it would be far more uh, perhaps intriguing for kids and, and uh, motivating for kids. It's not like we don't have time because you've got it. We can only teach dividing fractions once and that's at the end of sixth grade. So, you know, we got to get you there because, which is insane. The kids in our book said they didn't even know the names of the kids in their classes because why, why would we? It's all between us and the teacher. Whereas they said in their theater productions or teams or whatever, like, Obviously, you not need to know, just know people's names. You need to know uh, quite a bit about them because you're working together. So, yeah. Um, all right. I want to loop back to one thing we talked about at the beginning, and then maybe Rod has a lightning round question or two. So we've not just had a pandemic. We've also had uh, rising awareness of uh, racial inequality, um, things that 
have always been familiar to people of color, but becoming more widely visible and central across institutions, including predominantly white institutions. What, what, what do you think about the sort of developing equity conversation and associated actions or lack thereof uh, in the sector? Like, what's your take on kind of where we are and where we need to go? Well, um, I, I, I literally just wrote a book on that. So my, and, you know, funnily enough, it's with Harvard Press. Um, but I, I think that for at least the last decade, I've uh, sort of watched schools all over the country, at least rhetorically, right, um, make a pivot towards equity, right? And, and, and with some, you know, relative intensity in, in, in many places. Um, and I started doing this, I, I wrote this book, which, you know, emerged out of this keynote that I, you know, was, was doing all over the country quite, quite a bit because I was so concerned with how I saw it unfolding. And the, the story that I tell is that I, I was getting, when this, when equity became all the rage, I, I kept getting like all these requests to be like a thought partner for, you know, superintendents and, you know, school boards to like map out their equity strategic plan. And, and one of the first things that I would tell them is if, if you have an equity office or an equity officer, that's how you know you don't have equity. Because equity is not one person's job, right? Equity is not one office's job. Everyone's an equity officer or nobody's an equity officer. That, that has to be the long game. And you may need to start with an office, you may need to start with an officer, but the, but the long game has to be that equity is institution-wide, tip to finish, top to bottom, right? You don't, you don't send the kid to the equity trailer, right? Um, and, and, and the reason that I started making this point was because I was reading like all these equity strategic plans. And I can't tell you how many times people were using the terms equality and equity interchangeably, like they were synonymous. Right. And so I started doing this whole talk and I wrote this book to really disentangle those concepts, because I think the nation um, has, again, on its face rhetorically been committed to an equal education system or equality. Right. And we haven't even done that. I mean, not even close. And that's like Sesame Street level. I mean, equality is literally one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. And there's not a person in the country, like you could just do, you know, person on the street and ask them, do children living in poverty go to schools that are equal to the schools that middle-class children attend? And everyone will say no, right? So we, we haven't done that. And now we're talking about pivoting to equity which is epically more challenging right, than, than equality. And I don't think most, most of the places that, that I'm engaged in conversations with haven't, it's kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, they haven't actually thought deeply about what we actually saying we're going to do here. And what would it take? Now, I think equity is the move. I, I think thinking about systems of equity, thinking about 
equity in classrooms. That is the direction we need to go. But it requires this fundamental rethink. Why are schools talking about equity? They're talking about equity many times because they're embarrassed. Because they're, they're choking like on the same bad data year over year. But that's not a good reason to, to write up a new strategic plan. Right. The, the, the reason that we need to pivot towards equity is because we're we've created an institution that is doing harm to children and to our society. And it's not because kids aren't navigating the college or the careers and pathways. Right. It's it's so much deeper than that. And, and to me, that's what equity work means. At t- the beginning of the equity work is the for what question. Equity for what? And if the end game is the same end game you had on your radically unequal school system, which is we're going to get more kids into four-year colleges. We're going to get you know higher AP scores. We're going to get more black and brown kids into AP classes. Then you're never going to do equity. You're just moving deck chairs around the Titanic. That's suckers thinking. But if it's for a fundamentally different purpose, right? That we are bringing our community's children into this institution for wellness, in punto, right? That, that is really where my work and my heart and my head are focused right now, is, is on one promise. That, that, and the promise that I want from schools is that when, and, and I'll tell you, Joe, like this really, registered for me when we opened Roses in Concrete because I didn't experience this as much, really frankly at all, as a high school teacher. And what changed, what really fundamentally changed the way I think and talk about this stuff was drop-off. Is there isn't really drop-off in high school (laughs) because 16-year-olds don't want to be dropped off, right? But I watched when we opened Roses. It just changed me forever. I, I watched my community members because this is before my sons were school aged, right? Bring their children to us, these little babies, and give them to us at the front of the school and turn their backs and walk away. That was like the deepest experience I ever had. Wow, that is so deep what just happened. And nobody's talking about this, this moment right here as the moment. What is the promise? What is the promise that we make to a parent who gives their child to us and walks away for eight hours? And the only promise that I want as a parent is that when I come back and get my sons, they will be more well than when I dropped them off. And I believe that that is impossible to do every single day with every child. I've taught too long to believe that you could pull that off. And I don't actually think that parents expect you to pull it off. They expect you to make the promise that you promised me that, that my child will be more well for eight hours with you. And when you miss the mark, which you will, you atone. You own it, you apologize, 
And the next day, when I bring my child back, you pour extra medicine in because there's a debt due and you know there's a debt due and you don't duck it, you don't dodge it, and you don't deny it. And that's what it means to be an institution of education. And you can teach reading and fractions and everything else that we, the mechanical stuff that we know we want our kids to learn with that purpose, that sole purpose. And I believe the best educators that I've been around do that with the level of rigor that is so far superior to the folks who are really hyper-focused on the institutional strategies and structures that we currently have in place. And to me, the only way to do that in the way I'm talking about is through a lens of equity. Because the, the way that I talk about equity is that, that you, you get what you need when you need it. And that means that you're constantly assessing what does this child and what does this collective need right now? And what children need is often profoundly interruptive of what the state needs, right? To your point about fractions, Rod, right? Like we're, go we're foregoing fractions. Because what really needs to happen right now is a, is a kind of healing in this space that fractions, frankly, won't permit us to be able to engage in right now. If we get back to fractions, you're going to be all right. right? But you've got to be well to actually know what to do with fractions. And that's why I think so many people that are highly schooled, right, they're highly degreed end up using those degrees to do harm. I mean, you think about the people, we can name the people that are directly responsible for the collapse of the baking industry, for the collapse of the housing industry. These people attended the most elite institutions in the nation. Harvard be no exception, right? And, but they lacked a moral compass. And why is that, right? And I think that goes back to the purpose conversation, right? That you will not learn to read, write, and do math without a clear understanding about the responsibility that gives you to yourself, to your ancestors, and to your community. And that's, to me, right, that's the vision of equity where I really see it happening that comes through most profoundly. That's a profound point. And as a parent, I have felt that from the other side. My kids are now 11, 8, and almost 2. And, you know, when you drop your kid off, you're not so worried about, like, did the teacher, like, go to the right graduate school or do they have the most sophisticated pedagogical content knowledge or that sort of thing. What you're thinking is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to you know, take care of this young life and I'm handing this life to you. And I don't expect you to, you know, extend everything the way that I would. And you probably have different strengths than I do, but I, I expect you to the sort of, to the best of your ability to sort of care for this person as if it were your own and try the best you can within the limits of what you've got to do that. And what the kid needs to the equity point, you know, maybe the kid needs a friend. And so maybe today just by placing them at the table with the kid that they 
you know, are on the verge of making a friend with, you know, that that could change the kid's life in the way that, you know, um, an academic thing could not. I've also noticed with my kids' teachers that the the more experienced ones like give you a sort of like report on how your child is doing as a person. And the less experienced ones are like, you know, let me show you that they've got this many, you know, they've measured this many words and this many math and this many fraction. And you're like, I, you know, if your kid were really struggling with, with reading, then, then that would be the thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the academics, but I'm, I am saying that it, it did similarly to, to what you were saying, becoming a parent did really sort of change my sense of like what I wanted from the adults in a way that I didn't understand before I'd sort of held them in my own hands. And I, and I think a, a really important distinction that was made for me by the Maori community in New Zealand, which is the place where I, of all the places I've been in the world, like that is the, the indigenous Maori schools are the schools that I feel like are, are of, of the places I've been. I certainly haven't been everywhere, but they're the places that are getting it the, the most right um, around this kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> and and a, a really important distinction that they made for me that I still trip up on is this distinction between whatever we're going to call, right, the, the emotional well-being, the wellness, right, and academics. What you just described is academics, Right and 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 true intellectualism, true academics, is transcendent of the content because it's at a depth of your humanity. Right, it, the difference. Brian Brown at Stanford does a really good job of, of around math and science. Right, and he talks about the difference between that. What often happens for Black and Indigenous and, and BIPOC students and students growing up in poverty in math and science in particular is that they're they're taught the mechanics of math and science, but they're never taught to become mathematicians or scientists. Because as a as a math a mathematician, a scientist is an identity which transcends the mechanics of the content. And it's not that you don't learn the content, right? But it's like for what, right? Why why are you why do I need to learn geometry? Why do I need to learn algebra? Right. And I think the same is true here that 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 distinction gets us in trouble where we talk about we're doing the academic content now and we're doing the social emotional stuff over it. I see that happen a lot in schools, like it's the social emotional hour, right? And I'm not saying that's what you were saying, right? But I but I I see schools do that a lot, right? They they compartmentalize, right? When they're gonna do the 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 heart stuff, right? And when they're gonna do the head stuff. And I think we have to figure out a way to talk about this and model this in a way where it's like, no, actually, there is no distinction. We only do feelings at two thirty to three on Thursdays. Um, <laughs> that, that's when we have feelings class, um, f- for sure. Uh, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to add in. Uh, you know, as a parent of a 31 and a 30 year old, fully fledged. Um, so they have, you know, left the nest, which, you know, they're out of the basement. So that's a good thing. You know, all I ever wanted for them uh, with their teachers uh, was, are they going to, uh, is my child going to be a, you know, a, a, a better person for having spent a year with you? 
is 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 you know and it's pr pretty simple and and it rarely was uh, I'm not sure that teacher's um, writing skills are up to par or whatever it is, right? Like it's 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 very much the human being, and 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 I know as a um, teacher sitting on and a parent sitting on both sides of the of the parent teacher interview desk, you know, I, it's as soon as a teacher would bring out the grade book. Here, let me tell you about your how how your son's doing. You know, and bring out the grade book. It's like, well, put the grade book away, you know. I'm assuming if there was a problem, I would have heard about that a while ago. Let's talk about human beings. Let's talk about relationships. Let's talk about those things. Uh, Jeff, you've gave, given us so much to think about. We keep track uh, off to the side uh, while our guests are talking of, of, of quotes and things that we might want to we might want to add into the podcast notes. And we're off the end of the page and then some. So, so, so many great ideas that, that you've brought us. Jeff, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and uh, spending the last hour and a bit uh, with us. Uh, such a thoughtful conversation and, and a conversation led from the heart. What well, was so many strong ideas, but so connected into, into our value as human beings and, and how we want to value our, our kids as human beings and how we want our institutions, our schools to, to value kids as human beings. So uh, for me, thanks, thanks very much, Jeff, for a great conversation. And thanks. Uh... Thanks for me. Also, could not imagine someone who I'd rather talk to about these topics. Looking forward to much more in the years to come. Jeff, I didn't even ask if you're a Stephen King fan of the Gunslinger series with the name of your school, but um, Rose and Concrete, the, met, the metaphor is a, is a metaphor that goes through about nine volumes of, of uh, the Gunslinger series. So it's a... Yeah, no, we, we, we borrowed from Tupac Shakur for that, um, for that name. But... Um, but I'll have to look up um, the Gunslinger series now. Yeah, well, it's it, it'll be paid, you know, years out of your life trying to read it. So uh, I'm not sure I recommend it. Tupac's probably a, a, a better genesis. Well, th thank you all for having me. I, I appreciate it. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we were joined by Jeff Duncan Andrade. Thanks, everyone.